get into to cruel summer again another rendition of that uh, no no we will not be we will not be getting into another rendition of cruel summer mostly because it snowed last night but i have been singing the song lately i don't know why i think it was on in the h&r block i was in the other day <laughs> i'm just like sitting there like sweating out my 1099s Oof. and in the background it's like it was a cruel 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 summer and i'm just like i was in hell this was hell to me and you now the not, song is stuck in my head. You are not the first of my friends yeah. to be singing that to me this week. Yeah. Um, and it's very concerning. Yeah, no, it's because it's the song of the summer, Laura, for the well, 37th year in a row. For the, or whatever. Yeah, for the cruel summer, yes. <laughs> okay, um, but anyway, I think we have a place to lead today before we even get into anything. Are you ready to go on a journey I, with me? <laughs> <laughs> I get worried when you uh, ask me that. I know, but I want to, and I want to, so I've got an Associated Press article pulled up here. But I actually want to read the tweet that came out with it verbatim because it is a roller coaster. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, So here we go. This is from the Associated Press. Breaking. Baltimore's mayor taking a leave of absence as a political scandal intensifies about highly lucrative arrangements to sell her children's book series, including $500,000 of a sale to a university-based healthcare system. I thought the wire was over. <laughs> so we love a good scheme on this show. We folks. do. We really do. And I would have to say that in the pantheon of things we have discussed, being the mayor of a city and making a, from the look of the article here, a $114,000 sale equating to about 20,000 copies of your self-published children's book title, Healthy Holly, uh, which... <laughs> Have you looked at the reviews for Healthy Holly yet? Uh, They're really I have. good. Uh, we I've, should pull those up in a second. Yeah. But they, um, so Kaiser Permanente bought twenty thousand copies of this book at once, which of course alerted literally anyone whose job <laughs> it is to pay attention to <laughs> fraud in things like that. But um, yes, yeah, so we've got a really good case of self-dealing here. Um, I would definitely, I guess I won't officially say that this is a hashtag pub tip. But I'm gonna I'm gonna not not say it. Like if you happen to be in elected office and you you know you're writing children's book on the side, this is a highly effective way to move copies. What do you want me to say? I mean, this is, um, you know, I mean if the if the idea is to get on the list and you know if you we, are an elected <laughs> official and you yeah. want to move copies of your book, yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is unavailable. Is it unavailable at, now? On, on Amazon? Oh. Um, one other thing is that. Catherine Pugh also has another book um, that is all unavailable on Amazon. Well, I think there are used versions that are retailing for $100. And it's, I want to tell you about this one first. Mm-hmm. Mind Garden, colon, <laughs> Where Thoughts Grow. And is a, um, <laughs> a thought provocative collection of poems and prose. There you go. Uh, but yes, this children's book um, is Healthy Holly, colon, exercising is fun and it has nine 
customer reviews. Yeah, they're really good, too. You've got most of them are actually all of them. It's a 1.0 out of five. The yep. ratings here. Yep. Every single and one of all... them is from t- like this, <laughs> like the past two weeks. Yeah. Um, they're mad at the mayor. They're very mad. You know, they include such gems as exercising is fun, but money laundering is funner. <laughs> Huckster be, Holly that would teaches be a good children's book in and of itself. <laughs> it sure would. <laughs> Huckster Holly teaches kids how to steal five hundred thousand dollars and get away with it. Find me an illustrator. Yeah, I'm ready to sign that one up right now. Yeah, turns out Holly is the nickname for Pew's bank account. Um, and then the can't wait for the next in the series, Holly's Healthy Democrat Extortion. Oh, my God. I love it so much. Um, no, this is this is good. It sounds like she also made a sale of five hundred thousand dollars of her own children's book to like a university health care system, um, which is, again, um, you know, if you're if you're an up and coming author, we encourage this. I mean, this is bulk sales uh, are key. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, folks, if you're trying to get on the list, a good bulk sale, that'll help you do it. Um, so just something to think about for those of you out in the world today. Um, Print Run does not endorse the... Uh, you know. Scamming of... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to do a disclaimer, but I couldn't even get through it. Um, <laughs> so I guess that means that we're just arguing for it. Um, so go out and do some crimes, folks. Yeah. Um, April Fools. There you go. You don't need to do a disclaimer. You can just say April Fools. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. All right. Perfect. To which we should probably say, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Uh, say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Don't worry, I'm not doing crimes. Yeah, um, we aren't today, which is which is good. Um, we're avoiding the crimes, but uh, we've got a fun show for you today. We're going to talk about the Ritas and our general awards philosophy a little bit again, as well as an op-ed we saw in The Guardian today that kind of caught our attention. Um, but before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown, huh? Yeah. So it is the very beginning of April, April Fools. Um, but one thing we are not joking about today Jesus is the Christ, existence. Laura, you're really going to hammer this home the whole episode. I am. <laughs> Let me do it. Let me be the dad. Okay. Um, one thing we are not joking about today is our special episodes. So every month we have on Patreon three special episodes. We always do a query critique and a first page critique show. Mm-hmm. And then the third is kind of a floater. Sometimes it's a writing by reading. Sometimes it's publishing Cthulhu. Sometimes it is Q&As like it was last month. Um, so we haven't yet picked what the topic is, so you can get your suggestions in. But as always, send us your questions, your concerns, your suggestions, your queries, and your first pages to us. We are at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So, um, I wanted to start today with an article I saw in The Guardian, and luckily for us, we were going to talk about this anyway, but thankfully it also fits our favorite segment, What's Going On Down There? Um, And today it's actually something really good. Yeah. Um, Australia's been getting a bad beat on our show, <laughs> so it's it's time that we uh, we do something positive. Our, so. our uh, Kiwi listeners, though, are very pleased about that. Yeah, no, it is good. Um and please continue to yell at me on the internet about it. But um, so here's an op-ed. It's by a woman named Bethany Patch, who is an editor at Penguin Random House. It looks like in Australia. Um, so here's the name of the, the article: "The book industry isn't dead. That's just an excuse to keep salaries low." Man, it's refreshing to see someone write that. And so basically, the piece goes through all the things that you already know here in the states or in Australia or anywhere about the publishing industry, which is that. The people are underpaid and overworked, that people are working overtime in a way that is 
you know, un, you know, usually goes unpaid. It's kind of expected. You know, roles are expanding. Every job in publishing means taking on more and more responsibility for the you, same amount of money. For the same amount of money and the same title, often. Um, and it sort of paints the same bleak picture that all of us are familiar um, with discussing ad nauseum. But um, there's one line in here that, or there's a, there's a few bits in here that I thought are kind of refreshing that are kind of worth discussing as concepts here because I think that they apply to all of us in the way we think about these larger systems, the way we talk about what needs to happen in publishing and why. Um, and so here we go. Um, and this is this comes right after um, a just a you know a salvo about you know why people believe the salaries are low, which is basically that. Publishing has no money, right? Like that's why no one can get paid. It's because well, the industry is is quote unquote dying. It's because you know there's not enough money to go around, and the squeeze is happening on the salary level. But and here I'm quoting from the article. However, contrary to popular belief, the industry is not at risk of dying. Far from it. In fact, the industry has seen a growth in the last few years, with book sales increasing in value by 1.4 percent in 2018, according to the Nielsen Book Scan. Small growth, but growth nonetheless. As Samantha Forge points out in a recent article for Kill Your Darlings, book publishing employees could be seen as excellent value for money because they cost their employers less than in other industries. But this should not be used as an excuse to keep wages stagnant. So that gets at something that is happening in a lot of industries that I don't think publishing is as used to talking about um, in its own circles because... Well, I think it's mostly because of this concept of how much we all, quote unquote, love our jobs. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I feel like when any anytime you go out and discuss, like if you, for instance, you know, you go out to a happy hour or something, you get all the editors in a circle or something. Everyone always talks about how overworked they are, but oh man, they just love it, right? And that's why it's worth it. And that's why it's not worth perhaps thinking too critically about why it is that conditions are as bad as they yeah. are for the way they work. Laughing about how you didn't get into this for the money. Right, exactly, exactly. Like, it's this concept of just basically, you know, everyone's got to pitch in a little extra, right? Because we all love what we do, and because you love what you do, you don't want to make too much of a ruckus, because if you do, you might lose this job, which is, of course, your dream job, and you can never imagine doing anything else. And there are a thousand people lining up exactly. behind you to take your spot. Exactly. But what this kind of points out is a dynamic that occurs across all sorts of industries, which is that the reason, like, wages aren't going up is not because there's not more money you know being brought in like growth is still happening the problem is that that the money accrued from that growth isn't going to you you know what i mean like it's a it's a situation where like the amount of money you know the pie is getting bigger mm-hmm. right it's just that your piece of the pie isn't getting any bigger and in fact in relation to the whole pie it's getting smaller and so it just it gets at this idea of you know and this is you know you get into kind of some lefty economic stuff, but like just on a basic level across industries, this is something to think critically about. And it's because like, it's just worth asking these questions like, hey, if publishing is growing, and here, you know, she points out that at least in Australia, I don't have the American figures in front of me. It, you know, it is like, and why doesn't that translate to salary increase? And I think it's because for too long, you know, the, the concept of the dream job has been used as a cudgel. You know, I I agree with that. I think it's also worth mentioning, though, in the same breath, the 
um, the statistics in this particular industry, mm-hmm. right? Like sure. this, at least in Australia, um, they had statistics in this article about how 93% of the people that worked in publishing are female. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is proven in, in, you know, countless, countless studies mm-hmm. that women are paid quite a bit less yeah. than men are, yep. but also that, um, they are less likely to ask for a raise and they are willing to settle for a lower amount to begin with when the job begins. Um, and so you kind of have this cudgel of well we love this job but then Mm -hmm. you also have the very gendered aspect of it yeah absolutely um which really just like in in an industry full of women Mm -hmm. it's really hard to look at the person next to you and go well they're doing the same job but they're making more money than me because the person sitting next to you is also a white woman 93 percent chance of it being a woman right it also a white woman and so you kind of have you can't do that individual levering where you can go well my coworker is higher so you can you can put me higher it becomes it becomes more um widespread so it's not just systemic what it is is it's universal um which in some ways i think is a lot harder to a lot harder to fix yeah, no, I mean, and so just like to speak on the conditions here, I think the author here does a really, like, the, I, again, I read this and was just really refreshed by how straightforward it is to just put a voice to what we've been trying to talk about for a very long time. But here I think it's said really clearly. Here we go. It is rare in publishing to see a job advertisement that is transparent about salary, workload, and role responsibilities. No mention that you'll be expected to work long hours without extra compensation, that the pay is less than similarly ranked positions in many other industries, and that this is not likely to increase in a fair and transparent way. They don't mention that it's unlikely you will be consulted when your job description is changed to keep up with the increasing demand of publishing. It's expected that you will have already made sacrifices, either through tertiary study or unpaid internships, to be eligible for even the most junior roles, a structure favoring applicants from only the most privileged backgrounds. Which is true, and we've seen that we see that time and time again, and, and that we, we talk about and it all the time. And that weaves into all sorts of other conversations we have. But then, here, luckily, our friend Bethany here has a solution that people <laughs> in publishing should be thinking about a little bit more. Um, and so, here we go. I want to read this last bit, and then we can kind of, you know, we can sort of send off and discuss what we want to do here. Book editor standards for our own working conditions have, until now, been low. We have muted our expectations so as to not disrupt the delicate balance of the Australian publishing industry. But unionizing has given us a voice in decisions that affect us daily, an opportunity for our rights and interests to be truly represented and bargained for collectively. So. Unions. (laughs) Folks, um, just something to think about as publishing continues. And like, you know, and she makes a point at the end here and throughout the piece that there's sort of a psychological flip that needs to happen or an attitude-based flip, which is that too often loving your job, really loving what you do, and you and I love what we do, as critical as we are on this show and elsewhere about the industry and the state of things. We wouldn't have created a podcast to talk about things that we're passionate about if we didn't love this job. Most people are in this, because it's it's not a very good job. Like (laughs) Most people are in these jobs because they really have some there's some part of it that really gets them fired up right you have that i have that so does pretty much any book person but like 
that is too often a reason to not rock the boat, right? Like, I love my job too much to risk myself for it. And the point that she makes here that I think is really worth interesting is that she says that because she loves her work, not in spite of it, she's re- she wants to do things like organize her workplace and get people you know, invested in the idea of collective bargaining and things like that as a means. And she says here to her, you know, to her employer's credit, the Penguin Random House welcomed in the union that they, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I just, there's like, a, if you had to like point to like a fundamental flip in the arts in general, but especially in book publishing, it's just this idea that, you know, because just because you're passionate doesn't mean you should be treated like shit, you know? Do you and, think that... A big part of the reason that publishing has been able to take advantage of its workers is partly based on the idea that you need to suffer to make art. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. It's certainly true of, um, I mean, you can see how that's definitely true for like how writers are talked to. Yeah. You know, like you, you know, you want to like, that's how magazines get away with not paying. Right. You'll get exposure. Right. And Mm -hmm. you, that's something that's critical. You know, you should be willing to, like, do things up front for no pay or very little pay before you're established, you know. And it's the same – it is the same sort of idea in publishing. Like, the, the un, unpaid internships abound, you know. Low, low-paying low internships that really make – that in New York City might as well be unpaid, you know, are – you know, they're everywhere. And it's like – I don't know. Like, so, yeah, I, I just – I would agree that that passion, you know, the concept of, well, just because you like this – that should be enough as opposed to liking it and having decent working conditions, which is something that any, every, not every, but many, many other industries very easily talk about and deal. But there's something <laughs> like, I think that's like overly precious about the way book people talk about their own jobs. You well, know, yeah. I mean, if, if yeah. you are brought into this industry, <clears throat> understanding that it's highly competitive, yeah. understanding that you have already done a ton of free work, Mm -hmm. understanding that it's going to take a long time to work your way up and seeing people who will drop in and then drop out of the industry because they can't afford it or, um, you know, for various, various financial and uh, racial issues. um, That that becomes that becomes the vibe, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's that I am one of the few and. I think that we talk a lot in this podcast about how important it is to bring diversity to the acquisitions team and how important it is to bring diversity to the the rest of the teams in publishing yeah. across, you know, agents, across publicitor, <clears throat> publicity and marketing people, across executives. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of that is also you know, retaining, like, it it shouldn't be radical to want to retain talent in your industry. And money does that. You're right. So you say that and you're 100% right, that it should not be radical to want to retain talent. And yet in publishing, it is radical. Yes, it is. And you're, it's, I remember feeling that way. Like, I remember being an editorial assistant. And I was, like, I was pretty good at it, right? Like, that kind of administrative stuff. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm good at that kind of stuff. And I was good at it at the time. And I was a pretty good editorial assistant. But, like, I remember feeling when I was just in the pits of it, right? Like, I really just, like, hated it. I wanted a promotion. I wanted to be elsewhere. I remember applying for every job I could find, right? And just being miserable. Like, all of us were. Like, every editorial assistant is. They're all miserable. <laughs> all of them. And I remember just feeling, like, how can I be miserable when a thousand people would take my job right now. Yeah. And how do what right do I have to complain about this 
when and then on and then the flip side of it is what right do I have to demand more? Like I remember like trying to like rehearse how I could ask for a raise or something after a year, right? And I remember thinking why wouldn't they just get somebody else? Mm. It was a thought. And I remember like trying to like game it out in my head, right? It's like I'm good at my job, but they could teach someone else to be good at this stupid job in a few weeks. You know, they could get somebody else to do it. And you try to, you know, and it's just, it puts you in this box, man, you know? And it's like, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it just takes, I don't know, it takes a fundamental reimagining on the part of, um, and just like a new collective consciousness on the part of the people, you know, kind of doing these jobs and working. And like, I don't know, it's tough, but... I think that the points made in the, in the piece are, are really good, which is that love of what you do is, in fact, the reason why you should try to improve its conditions. Yeah. You know, not the other way around. I mean, just as important as publishers investing in audiobook studios and audiobook technology or, you know, um, interactive ebooks and that yeah. sort of thing, like yeah. just as important are the people yeah. that are in this business. You know, I always like when those um, when those like business journal yeah. Articles come around where it's like, well, automation is is changing the workforce. Like, <laughs> click here to like find out how in danger of your yeah. of losing your job you are in the Horrible. next twenty five or fifty years Horrible. or whatever. And the thing is, is people in publishing have the lowest chance of that happening. Yeah, and it's- like editors, agents, etc. Like, our jobs are not going to go away with automation, and so. There's yeah, so it even even more reason to to work on this and even more reason to fight for it. Yeah, mm. no, totally. Speaking of fighting, mm-hmm. please. Uh, <laughs> I, I love speaking of fighting. Romance Landia is added again, folks. Hell yeah. Um, so we're we're not going to spend the rest of this podcast kind of litigating what has happened in the romance world uh over the past couple of weeks but i'm going to give you a little bit of history and a little bit of context to understand what it is that we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. um so the romance writers of america is the big professional and semi-professional writers association for romance publishing um they have a set of awards every year that are given out at their national conference the Ritas, and The Ritas last year, when the finalists were announced, the RWA issued a statement saying that they are acknowledging that they have a problem with representation in their awards, specifically the representation of black women. Let it be noted that in 20 years, no black woman has ever won a Rita Award. Yeah. Ever. Um, And so then everybody was like yay i'm really glad you know the ritas are you know there's there's a board they're working on it everything's going to be okay they're going to make changes they're really open to ideas etc well the uh, rita finalists came out the other week mm. and the problem persists okay so what do you mean by that so i'm i'm talking about how there are still not there's still not accurate representation in the um, people up for the awards. In the people up yeah. for the awards. And so yeah. it's worth mentioning. And there was like this whole big to do where the person who, Cherry Adair, who was up for the big Lifetime Achievement Award, um, 
you know, everybody was critiquing the Ritas and then she got mad and started talking about lynch mobs and, you know, like blocking. Really always a good idea. Yeah, blocking um, black authors who were just kind of like around, not even engaging with her. And it was a very, very large mess. A bunch of people pulled their Rita nominations, etc. This is a this is a white woman talking about the lynch mob. Correct. Kind of, OK, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, a racially based lynch mob. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Right, sure. So anyway, it, it's it's blown up and gotten to be a little bit of a mess but the key thing that i want to mention is that is how the ritas are formulated so um most big romance authors of color don't even enter the ritas because here's how here's how it works Mm -hmm. you as an author need to self enter into this award Mm -hmm. it costs 50 dollars for your first um like self-nomination, $75 thereafter. So that adds up really, really quick. Um, Not to mention that the RWA conference is also the literally the most expensive conference I've ever been to. It's hundreds of dollars, Mm -hmm. hundreds of dollars, right? Not including travel and lodging, et cetera. Of course. Um, And so then what happens is there's about 2,000 people who enter themselves in, in their books into various categories and it's all people who can afford all this yes all people who can afford the $50 or $75 entrance fee and then what happens is everybody who has submitted themselves for this award um, gets around five manuscripts or five books that they you know from various categories that they rate and they rank and there are all these rules about, you know, judging for the Ritas. It's that, you you know, you can't talk about what books that you got. You can't talk about what you what you scored. It's basically just like keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the what's happened there is something that I have only learned about in the past couple of years. But a lot of authors of color just know that they're not going to be finalists in you know in this in this in this award system because there are so many people who will under impunity because it's all anonymous will give a book one star because it's got a black hero and they don't like black men so talk to me about that anonymous thing you just mentioned like how does so how does like the voting or the you know like the the rating, the the way someone wins this award, what gets accumulated here and how does that happen? So every person who submits, you know, a book of theirs for consideration uh-huh. gets five books to look at and judge. Okay. And then the ratings for all of those are aggregated and then the winners are chosen. So you enter your book and then you get to rate five other books. Yes. And you don't have to explain why you rated anything any certain way. Correct. And you don't even. Have... Uh, I mean, there there is like a feedback form, sure, but that's not what but gets aggregated. No, and you don't have to put your name on it. Correct. Yeah, there's problems here. <laughs> so one, so so a lot of people have, you know, there are women of color who are working very very hard on the board of the RWA to fix this. Um, there are other people who are doing good work and raising awareness, and you know, basically like talking the white women down who think that the, that we're saying that they don't deserve to to be nominated and that's not what it is it's just that this is an unrepresentative sample right of the of the romance marketplace and if this is like the biggest award really like the only award right in this mm-hmm. in this genre um 
you know, the the ripped bodice, the 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 big romance only bookstore in California, they do a diversity survey um, and it shows like the state of publishing in general. But they also have data about their best selling books and their best selling books are always by authors of color. And the fact that a romance only bookstore Mm -hmm. that is thousands of romance titles are primarily selling, you know, the, the ones that they're selling the most of are by authors of color and these aren't even being represented in the biggest award yeah is a big concern so what you're it sounds like what you're saying is that we have an award here that is claiming at least in part to be not necessarily and we're going to get into this middle ground in a minute but not necessarily crowdsourced but fairly democratic right like this is an award theoretically decided by the people at least as it would self-describe right by your peers exactly and so, but it, it keeps producing results that are absolutely not reflective of the actual state of romance reading Correct. and publishing. That's what that's where Correct. we're at. Yeah. So where I want to go with this discussion today, because I think you and I can both agree that racism is bad, <laughs> yes. um, and that and that it's bullshit yep. that Beverly Jenkins won the. Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017, but has never been nominated or won a Rita. Yeah, that's, um, that's bullshit, yeah. right? It's just it's sure. just bullshit. And so without, you know, harping on that and going over things that we know to be true, I want to talk about awards. Yeah. Specifically, um, the merit of certain formations of of awards, kind of what what awards tell us about the publishing landscape, what they're meant to do, and then kind of bringing in the idea of representation, right? Sure. It's 2019 and the the publishing landscape is changing. We're being exposed to ideas that previously had been shut out of publishing. And there are different things taking taking root yeah. in in the industry. Yeah. And so how do we have an award that actually matters, that matters to readers, that matters to publishing professionals? but is representative of the actual publishing landscape and maybe even is aspirational. Sure. Um, and and really just make sure that it it makes sense. And I don't yeah. want to use the word fair, but I want but like that it means something. Yeah. So I think fundamentally when you start deciding how like an award should be structured, right? Mm-hmm. And how or how it's given out, the first question you have to ask is who's picking it? Or who's who's doing the awarding? Yeah. Right. And sometimes, in some instances, that can mean a jury that's been picked. Right. Like, like for instance, most of the literary awards, you know, they get famous novelists or critics to be, you know, the board that gets together and decides who wins. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like, you can have you go the complete other way and have it be very crowdsourced. You know, almost like a reader's choice situation. Yeah. You know, Goodreads where, does that. Exactly. For where like the people who are picking the awards are the ones who aren't necessarily accredited literary critics who aren't you know part of some professional society they're just readers right yeah and so the question is what works best and why and for what purpose and you and i have had a show before where we kind of designed our literary award and we sort of came down in different spots and what we were looking for and you and i wanted a jury yeah and i think and so the reason that conversation can you know hinged on a very specific belief that 
many, many awards of many different kinds need to exist, right? Like there's not one way to do it because each way is imperfect and the literary landscape requires multiple things to have happen and different modes of evaluation and all that kind of stuff. And But so to get at a question like how do we fix something like the Rita's where it feels like there's... It's the worst of all the worlds. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) it feels like it's this middle ground, right? Because it's on the one hand, it's not fully as you pointed out with the disjunct between like what's actually happening with readers in romance versus what's happening in this award. It's not actually a reader given award, right? Like people are reading and enjoying books that are much different than the ones that are, that are winning. It's by your peers, but it's by your peers that have money to spend to enter the award every year and have a book published that year. Well, and so peers are peers is an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Right. Because like, if you think of, like when I think of peers in an award, I think of I think of like a man booker panel or something sure. where it's like you're you've got this these top flight, you know, novelists, you know, who are up for the award and they're being given the award by other people of maybe they haven't won at the award but of similar stature, right? Like there are like people with established there's a certain amount of like respect like you read the names of the jury and you're like, okay, yeah, I could, like, I value. I trust their opinion. Yeah, exactly. That's someone who I would be interested in hearing rationale for giving a book award from. Sure. That isn't true in what you're describing here. It's, you've got, one, it's anonymous, so we have no idea what anyone's thinking. But two, <laughs> no one, and two, no one has to explain themselves. And three, these people aren't necessarily, they're not necessarily leading lights in the industry. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily, um, you know, they may not even be good faith actors in any of this stuff. You know, right. like there's plenty of reasons why you can pick at an anonymously given award that's done based on a five star rate. Like, you know, it, it feels a, <laughs> anyone listening to this is like counting in their heads all the ways this can go wrong. You know, <laughs> and and so the the temptation, I think, is to go the other way. Is to say, okay, well, we should what we should do is we should turn it over to fully to the reader somehow. You know, the people who give the awards for the best books should be the ones who actually read them and their voices should be absolutely heard in as democratic of a way as possible. So I will and say... So talk to me about that for a second. Okay. Like, what do you think about that? Like, if I were to pose that to you, so I think I think <laughs> these awards should be given, like, forget juries, forget this, like, selective By readers for readers. Yeah, exactly. Like, tell me why you don't think that is so great of an idea or tell me why you do. Okay, so... And this is this is a personal bias, sure. right? Um, but I love it when an award will tell me something I don't already know, right? Yeah. And so I yeah. love it when, for example, like I we love talking about the Man Booker, which is now the Booker, mm-hmm. the Man Group pulled away from the sponsorship. <laughs> but I I love it when we talk about the Booker. And they talk about this like this is this avant garde like wild card kind of publishing award Mm -hmm. that you have really smart minds who curate this list and they pick a choice and it and it really like says something and a lot of these books i haven't heard of or haven't wouldn't have read otherwise my next problem what happens every single year when the man booker list comes out you and i everybody gets sassy you and i stare at the list and we say i've never heard of any of these books And, uh, <laughs> and that is a great that is a great feeling. It is a great feeling. You end up going and finding things. It makes you, us look like dumbasses, right, but like for a right. reader, exactly. it's a good thing. Exactly. And like the thing of it is, is you you and I are not professional literary critics. Correct. We're not people whose job. I mean, we're not professional. I was about to say 
the next line I was going to say is it's not our job to like know what's going on. It's like, well, yes, it is. But in but a different way. In a different way. <laughs> in a different way. Exactly. Like there's there's a certain purview. Like there is a certain expertise in knowing what's happening that's interesting right. in a field. And I think that it is valuable to hear from those people in a way that teaches me what what you know, like what books are out there that I haven't that I haven't found yet, right. you know? And so what a reader's choice style award says to me mm-hmm. is one, I'm thinking like, well, isn't that just called like this author has enough money to like keep writing and like has a bestseller to their name? <laughs> you know, like that's one of well, those so things, right? Just connect Where, those dots for me real so quick. So readers readers show their 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 vote with their with their money mm-hmm. right they you know if a book is a re- if, if, if if a book is a reader's choice it's on the bestseller lists if a book is a reader's choice this author is getting huge deals the bestseller list can be read as its own version of a reader's choice award you're correct yeah. um and the reader's choice award like it, it like i'm thinking about the goodreads mm-hmm. choice awards right mm-hmm. which are curated in a different way than like the New York Times bestseller list, for example. Um, but essentially what that tells me is it's A, you've had a really popular or best-selling book, and B, you're really, really good at mobilizing your specific fandom because it like votes yeah. in a bracket. Yeah. And so okay. you're you're specifically good at targeting your fans on Goodreads and having them vote on your behalf. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So the Goodreads Awards is bracket style? I think so. Oh man! Like I, I'm like having an aneurysm even thinking about. That. I think like, so. I don't like quote stuff. me on that, but sure. like I was under the impression that it was. Yeah. It's so that gets into like if we're arguing for why just turning all awards or this award over to quote unquote the readers is maybe not so good of an idea. Like the first thing I want to like do is look at. Like, just how Goodreads functions and how, like, Amazon reviews function. Mm-hmm. And I think any any author, first of all, will tell you, anyone who's, like, published a book will tell you that they hate Goodreads. <laughs> well, yeah, that it's owned by hate, Amazon. That yeah. they hate, well, no, it, it, not even that. It's that they'll, you go on there. Like, do you, when you give advice to authors who have published, what do you say? You say, don't never read the, never reviews. Read the reviews. And why is that? It's because because everybody has unf- a bad opinion. Because they're unfair. They're un. You know, it's like same thing as Yelp, right? Like, I mean, where it's people have negative experiences with books for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the book. Yeah. Right. It's like this they, font was too small. One star. And it can easily be mobilized into, you know, like maybe for instance. You see this a lot where like an author will say something online that we were literally dislike. just joking about this at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. Those Amazon one star yeah. reviews. And like in that yeah, exactly. Like people will just go like the Amazon targeting thing or the Goodreads targeting thing is a thing that happens. And it's in like and it's similar to actually what you're talking about with the readers, which is that the opportunity for bad faith influence is high. It is. You know? And it makes you want it makes you want the award to be picked by people who who know what they're talking about, right? <laughs> yes. And like, it's so you, know, you and I were before we got into this conversation. One of the things that kind of bubbled up for me as um, as we kind of mapped out how we wanted to do this was like, I know that in other circumstances, I have argued the exact opposite of what we're going to argue. Like, not for literary awards, but like when thinking about, for instance, like. 
how do I want elections to work? Sure. Or something. Right? Like, my impulse is always to be like, no, people... Like I want these to be popular vote. I want dem- I want them to be as democratic as possible. I don't like delegates and super delegates and these things that serve as stopgaps against like popular progress, right? But somehow <laughs> maybe I'm just like a part of this establishment in a way that I'm not politically, you know, but like it's it feels different to me in that one this is I mean we're not selecting someone to represent us in a government. We're select we're, we're selecting our favorite. We're selecting a whatever book. that means. We're selecting a book to be the winner by a specific definition of an award, right? right. Like it's is a this is a fundamental. So I'm a little bit more like in this analogy, I'm a little bit more willing to turn this over to the to the delegates, to the quote unquote the pe- the adults in the room, the people who know what they're talking about, right? Because I am someone who, and this is maybe. I don't know how controversial of an opinion this is. I don't think very, but it it certainly is not a sentiment I see expressed a lot. I really think that literary critics are like under the gun and right now and needed more than ever, even as they are. Like, I think that publishing and its way of pushing books and way of kind of evaluating books has shifted far too much onto like Goodreads and Amazon and stuff. Like, I miss when reviews in outlets people cared about mattered more than they do now. Well, you know? literary and, merit and quality yeah. are judged by fundamentally different markers exactly. than popularity. Exactly. Right. And that's, that's good, always been the case. Yeah, that's a and that's always been the case and it always will be and I and I like both of these things. Mm. I like being able to choose a book based on one or the other you know like sometimes i will pick up a book because literally everybody i know has told me to read it and i like picking up a book because somebody says wow this is a really 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 interesting piece of fiction or nonfiction." and a lot of the times like i think where people get confused is that these like for a specific book these dovetail right Mm -hmm. um there's a book or, or a piece of media that everybody wants to chew on critically, but then also everybody just, like, sees and everybody makes a bunch of money. And yep. so then you think those two things are the same thing. They're not. They're and they're not. not. And so, like, you know, as somebody who is just neck deep in this industry all the time, like, I don't need the reader's choice. I, like, what I want... Because you're aware of the best, you're aware of which books are popular. I am, yeah. and what, but and what I want instead is I want somebody to bring attention to and highlight projects that normally, you know, have something against them. Whether it is just like that, it wasn't a bestseller, or you know, in the case of romance, is that it's written by somebody who is of color. Yeah. Um, because I think that that is the way that this job in this world and this industry stays fresh and interesting Mm -hmm. and full of ideas like having like romance is already highly highly trope driven it takes a lot to be really um subversive with your work just because that there are there are more strictures than most genres to that are placed on the plot itself And so when you show a black woman as a heroine that has a master's degree and she is the hero and she is falling in love and having a great time, like that is worthy of being held up and 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 
you know, like shining a spotlight on that. No, I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. And it's like so to like get back to, you know, how do we fix how do we fix the Rita's? You know, how do we do something like that? It's to me, it's like you want you want a panel, I think. Yeah. If you're and this is, you know, one podcast's opinion, it would appear. <laughs> but like you want a you want a panel of people who know what they're talking about, but you want it to be actually representative of like and that's and that's something we talk about plenty, right? Which is that the way to affect change in this industry is not just to amplify voices or to do these things, it's to get a diverse set of people into positions that matter. Yes. You know? And so and that requires you know, nine steps before that happens, but that's the end point, right? Like that's the goal is to get, you know, editors of, you know, diverse backgrounds, to get critics of diverse backgrounds, to get people thinking about this stuff on a sophisticated level in different ways. Readers are downstream of the industry, right? Like we talk about, well, readers should pick, readers should pick, readers should pick, but reader, like fundamentally, when you think about how book books work, readers pick what we offer them like you know like you know what i'm saying though like it's publishing publishing happens and readers pick from what gets published like it's not as though publishing itself is democratic you know really i mean it's um you know the books that are available to read i guess you know self-publishing changes this to some degree but like it's like the i think that there's always going to be this role of an industry needs to be able to accurately talk to itself and about itself and present itself to people in a way that is fair to its creators and the actual things happening within its industry and that i think extends to awards and i just think like as like a broad point and this is you could talk for hours on this too but when you think about how like a canon gets shaped you know yeah it's you i mean probably it has to do with critical coverage and you know i mean people think about it in terms of People think about it too much in terms of writers, I think. It's like the people shaping the canon are not writers. It's the critics. You know what I mean? Like it's – there's the massive material and the canon is picked from by the people whose job – who's are in position to do the picking. And so for me, so much of this stuff, whether it's awards, whether it's review coverage, whether it's any of this other stuff where like you get – you know, a, a like a nice spotlight shined on projects that I think there's no way around refining that spotlight in a way that actually reflects what's happened. Like you're never going to get past publishing in itself being a filter, mm-hmm. you know, like the process is never going to be fully democratic. It's never just going to be here's what readers want. And that comes into being like because we're telling them what to read. We are like it's it's a political act. It is exactly like you're and there's no. You're never going to be able to crowdsource those choices. Eventually, you just have to make them correctly. And all the funny tech companies are like, "We're going to ask yeah, the readers." Yeah. It's never going to work. It makes that makes me nuts. Like you're never going to get away from editorial curation. There's no way to do it in any way that like you cannot substitute that because that's not how art works, and it's not how any art scene in any like not just books in any you know section of the arts works. Um, and so, Hell yeah, job. Like job stability, <laughs> yeah. except for the whole money and part. So <laughs> it's just like you need, you have to be willing to critically examine the apparatus that exists. And it's like, it's so funny. And maybe, maybe tomorrow, you know, when I've like sat with it for longer, I'll feel totally differently. But I can hear myself saying, like, it's just so funny. I can hear myself saying things that I know in different contexts 
I would like push back on if it wasn't books. Sure. You know, like like I just keep thinking of like the way I talk about like elections and stuff and I'm like this is the kind of point that I would be getting really mad at, but like it's it's just different and I'm willing to like change my you know, but like I I feel like you're never going to get away from needing critics to just do their job well and so it's a matter of getting the right people in position to do that you know my big thing is that if we are going to have an award that is you know the most prestigious award for a particular genre yeah it has to be juried yes like because that that allows the award to be about art rather than popularity you can't have prestige given out in bad faith yeah and you can't and and so like I mean, if if the Rita's wants to turn into a Goodreads Choice Award, great. But then it's not going to be the Rita's, right? Right. And and then there is going to be a hole there for for the prestige in 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 romance, right? Right. And so um, that's that's kind of where I'm coming down on. And it'll be interesting to see what they do in the future. Um, But I wanted to make sure that we that we touched on the structure of awards because giving like critiquing. The Rita's only understanding and only taking into account um, their failures in terms of racial equality, uh, I think, I think is only part of the picture, although it is certainly an incredibly dire. Yeah, it is certainly a, a very dire circumstance. So I want to move on to our Tulune at May concern. Please. I'll just say real quick, if we can just do like a plug. Hit it. Um, the... Like this last month with our special episodes, we did an Ask Print Run mm-hmm. um, as the third episode. And I thought it was really good. Honestly, like, you know, we do a lot of those shows. and But like, I've, I feel I really feel proud of that one. And I think like part of it is because we got like some really good questions. And so. Um, keep it, asking us like, questions. Keep asking us We stuff. are like, here for yeah. you. No, like it's, you know, whether it's through the hashtag Ask Print Run or whether you add us at, at Print Run Podcast or you send us an email at printrunpodcast@gmail.com. Like, keep sending us stuff because so oftentimes it gets us thinking about whatever you guys are thinking about in ways that we didn't even know people were concerned about, or you know, like. And it's really always interesting, and sometimes it leads to what I think was a good show the other day on Patreon. So, anyway, keep sending us stuff, and we really appreciate it. All right, you ready, Eric? Yes. Gentle loon. That's a new one, and I like it. <laughs> Gentle Loon, my manuscript was selected for a mentorship program that included an agent showcase. I was thrilled, and as part of my participation, withdrew my full manuscript from four agents and a partial from one agent. All of them had had the manuscript for more than six months, and prior to the mentorship, I had already started working on major revision based on on a constructive rejection I'd received. Mm. The problem is that I bombed the mentorship. Loon, I bombed it badly. (laughs) For various reasons, I was on the verge of a depressive slump before I was selected, and then I fell in. I didn't bond with my mentors and couldn't figure out how to communicate with them. I think they expected me to go to them with questions, but I spiraled almost immediately into a state of anxiety that made initiating communication feel impossible and slowed down my revision progress. I spent the first two months of the mentorship outlining a revision that my mentors approved, but when I started rewriting, they weren't happy with the results. After revising my first act twice and not even beginning the second half of my manuscript, although I was working hard to make the deadline, my mentors told me that they didn't believe it was possible for me to finish and that I shouldn't participate in the agent showcase. It was devastating. Mm. 
I was exhausted and frustrated and neck deep in self-doubt. And the whole experience seems to confirm one of my biggest fears that no matter how much I want to write, I will never be able to handle publishing. I see a lot of conversations, Twitter threads, blog posts, etc., about how publishing requires thick skin and the ability to not give up and that it's really, really hard and you have to be tough. Capital T. Mm-hmm. But I am a dainty nosegay of neuroses, a fragile baby with anxiety, and a history of severe depression. Same. Uh, My mentors left me with the impression that they didn't think I could handle being edited or worked on deadline. What if they're right? How can I ask an agent or an editor to have faith in me when my track record is crumples up like a used tissue when stressed? I feel like I failed an audition or that I didn't pass the publishing stress test. Since the mentorship ended, I've gone on antidepressants and other positive life changes have helped alleviate my general anxiety and depression. I'm still working on revising my novel, but I don't know what to do about resubmitting to the agents I withdrew the manuscript from months ago. I also can't shake the fear that it ultimately is futile and that on some level I'm fundamentally too broken to succeed in publishing. I don't want to give up, but I don't know how to move forward with any kind of confidence. Anxiously yours, a casualty of pitch wars. Okay, so, like, the place I want to start here is with, there's two things that, st- I mean, that's, that was a big, long email, and there's a lot of concepts to kind of get into, um, but two small details stuck out to me with regard to the point I want to make about this. The first was that, the idea of a track record, mm-hmm. right? And, Laura, you tell me if you think I'm crazy about this, all right? This person doesn't have a track record. No. This person had a bad experience in an online there's no track record here yeah nobody's gonna be calling up your pitch wars mentors and being like (laughs) so how were how were they so that's so that's point number one and that sounds glib and i'm gonna expand on that in a second but point number two is that the thing that is giving you anxiety right now it seems is what you described as seeing the con these conversations right you said you're seeing things online you're seeing people talk about this you're seeing people talk about that it's all this stuff that's happening on the internet and you're watching it and it's giving you anxiety. And my advice is the same advice I give myself when I'm feeling terrible about my writing, which is to log the hell off. <laughs> and I think that the reason that is the answer is because there is just, I don't know how to put this any like less blunt than this, but like Twitter isn't publishing. Social, these internet stuff, these, even these contests are not. Pitch public. Wars is not publishing. Pitch Wars, isn't, Pitch Wars is a great, like, we love Pitch Wars. It's a great thing. I, I, as an agent, I go on there. It gets, it's good. But, like, it's not, that's not publishing. That's, it's not necessary to be in publishing. It's not, it's. It's not an accurate representation of it. <laughs> like, the point is, all of this stuff is simply one avenue, you know, and it's a small version of the avenues. Like, you can totally forego. All of this stuff. And I would say that none of it is really lasting at this point. And so if I were you, what I would do, and I have been in this, like, I haven't, like, done pitch wars or done any of these online stuff with my own writing. But I will just say, like, when I'm feeling the worst about my own work, it's because I'm spending too much time staring at other people talk about theirs. Yeah. You know? And that is true for my writing. It's true for my agenting. You know, like, the agent culture online is to, like constantly tweet about all the secrets you have and how good you are and how many deals you're doing and it's like that can be anxiety inducing for us because it's like well I don't have that many deals like maybe I'm no good you know it's it's the same sort of mechanism right and what I would just say is like 
your work is your work and it can take as long as you need to like just Donna Tartt publishes one book every 10 years. Just, But even that, even that is a more extreme example of that. That's true. And a perfectly good thing to think about when it's when you need to. But like Twitter and all the stuff you see online, all the writing posts, all the hashtags, all of the pitch contests, all this, all the agents tweeting, all of that stuff. It all if you don't want it to, that all has the meaning that you give it. Sometimes for some people it works. For some people it's like a way in, it's a way to meet some people. And for other people it's alienating and weird and anxiety inducing and bad and that is 100% fine and not a deterrent at all into being in publishing. And I would just say like it sounds as though if you if you got your manuscript in the hands of five different agents who wanted to read it like it sounds like you're onto something, you know. Like you're either your query is good or your concept is good or whatever. Or it's both. Like, yeah, maybe both. And it's, I would like my honest advice to you is just get off writer Twitter for a while, and just focus on getting the getting the work done at whatever pace you need to. You know, t- be nice to yourself. You know, like if you need another year on your revisions, even if it doesn't feel like that much work, take the year. Like, do what you've got to do to get yourself, to get the work done. Focus there first. And then it's like, and don't, all this other stuff is clouding your mind. Like, it's truly, it's not, like, there's no blemish on your record right now. Truly, there's not. I promise you. Okay, so functionally, the question is, how do I go back to those agents who had the manuscript before I did revisions and go back? And so I think... um, like, uh, presumably, when you pulled the manuscript, you said, I'm going to be in pitch wars. Can I send you this manuscript when I'm done? And their answer was, yeah. Um, I've gotten dozens of those emails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the answer is always yes. Yeah. And so what you do is when you're done, send them the email and say, thank you. Like, I, I'm done with pitch wars. It was a really, you know, it was a really valuable experience to me. I've got a revised manuscript for you. Here's how it, like, here's my new query. Here's the new thing. Right. That's it. You don't need to explain this. You don't need to apologize. Quite honestly, they're probably not. They're like probably going to be really excited to see it, but they're not like waiting there and they're not going to do the math about how long it took you to get it. No one is thinking about this as deeply as you like. That's the truth of it. Like, (laughs) like, and that should be freeing, you know, like agents, the agents who you pulled from didn't think about it that hard, you know. And that when when you send it back, they'll think, oh yeah, no, I was interested in that, and they'll yeah. and they'll take it back. And, yeah. and if they don't, fine. Like you'll find some other people to send it to. And like this is not to like it sounds like I'm trying to minimize your anxiety, but I'm not. I'm saying that as someone who also similarly routinely experiences this sort of anxiety, the way to handle it is just to remember that functionally, what you are seeing, the thing that you're consuming, the seeing, the seeing, seeing, seeing that you keep saying about these conversations that are happening in front of you, this pitch war stuff, like it is a very, very small slice of publishing. And there's many, many other avenues. And you've got all the time in the world and all the space in the world to do what you need to do. Yeah. I also want to address directly um, for the writers listening the the issue of mental health. Yeah. So the idea, so the problem that you dear casualty experienced is that you were falling into a depressive slump and you were in a structure you know pitch wars that was very time focused and you didn't connect with your mentors and they didn't know how to communicate with you in that setting um and i will say that 
that might be your, your experience in publishing. But if you do the work now and you submit to the correct agents, it won't be. So, for example, um, as an agent, like as a human being, um, I am part of many, many generations of people in my family who have um, mental illness. Mm. Specifically, I have depression and anxiety and it is, you know, a genetic hormone imbalance and it's just going to be that way forever and ever and ever mm. right um sometimes it's properly medicated for sometimes it's not but like i like as an agent with this experience have that understanding i talk all the time with editors that i work with or want to work with about like what meds we're on and all of that like the thing is is you're in a creative industry and a whole bunch of people have the same mental illness as you mm-hmm. also find that freeing and so like when you're looking for an agent Like you, your relationship with your agent can be whatever it is that you need. So my most prolific author that I work with has very, very severe anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our publishing plan reflects that. Our our communication reflects that. And so, for example, we spent um, a long time at the beginning of our work making sure I say like we like I was doing the writing but like like they spent a long time kind of getting ahead in the writing and revising process and so that when it comes down to the their publishing schedule they're always ahead of what their deadlines are in publishing Mm -hmm. and they have the time and they have the flexibility so that if they have a three-day long panic attack it's not the end of the world and that it's fine sure you know we have like as a as an as an agent who understands this you know i i encourage and welcome my authors to be really frank with me about their not just like their financial situations um and their and their like physical health situations that might you know impact their career but their mental health like all of these things are a key part of working together with somebody yeah and the idea that like somebody telling you that you can't hack it because you know one experience didn't work for you is bullshit you know you can make this industry work for you however you want everybody is all afraid of you know the book deadline but you know what if you're like you know if you have back surgery and you we ask your publisher really nicely if they'll extend your deadline they'll extend your deadline. If you are in a depressive episode and we ask your publisher to extend the deadline, they'll extend the deadline. Like this, out of many industries, like this one specifically is incredibly sympathetic to people with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, Simply just because all of us have it. Um, But also because, you know, it's, it's, it's art. And and you are able to move a launch date. It's not like yeah. you need a computer program or an update for a for a tech thing that's due sure. or else. No, I mean, so I guess the the last thing maybe for this specific person as they're thinking about you know starting to query again and everything is just like social media, especially 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 writer Twitter. Oh my God has the effect of making everyone seem like they're on top of the world all the time that you're looking at like people only like when they're doing their writer thing they only post when good stuff is happening yeah you know they don't post when they're stuck under a table or can't get out of bed exactly exactly like 
you are not seeing an accurate sample of what's happening. And you should feel, I think, bolstered by that and know that what you're going, you're like, you are not someone do it you're like you're not the only one like doing it wrong you know what i mean like you're not the you're not the, like the one who's remedial or something like you're just one more writer finding their way and i'm telling you that you are going to be i mean you know if, if you are still interested in doing this if you like your writing and you believe in your book or you believe in the next book you know whatever it is if you want to be a writer every route is still available to you every like, single it, one it's there's nothing nothing's been closed off free yourself from that thought and just get back just get back to work you know like it'll be I think you're going to be fine. Truly, I do. Yeah. And and Pitch Wars is just a tiny little thing. And yeah. it's one thing to put in your bio that you were selected for Pitch Wars. And nobody's going to look closely at that. Yeah, just They're, say that. There it is. Boom. Like, like there it is. Put that there in it your is. Yeah. It's just one more thing to put in it. Yeah. And nobody's going to go, well, well, tell me about how you biffed that. Right? Yeah, no, nobody, one, no one cares about no that. No one cares. Yeah. No one will ever say. Because here's the truth of the matter. Yeah. Once you're in, you're in. Yeah. You're in yeah. And nobody cares. Yeah. And nobody cares. They only care about your writing, which it sounds like you're good at. So, okay. Godspeed. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you all, the rest of you, so much for listening to this episode of Print Run. Um, Remember, we will have special episodes coming to you on Patreon later this month. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. 